All right, I'm recording. I don't know I where. <laughs> I know. Well, it's on this computer is what it said, so God only knows where it is. Anyway, hi. Hello, hello. Happy New uh, Year. Happy New Year to you. Uh, I hope you've been having a good one so far, all four days. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Today is just a little time like check to place us in context. Today is the 4th of January, mm -hmm. 2021. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, what are we here to do today, Jim? Well, I have a list. You have a list? Yes. Okay. I have a list before we get to, well, what we're really here to do is to inter have our 10th anniversary interview with each other. Our 10th anniversary interview. Yeah. Yeah, it's been over 10 years, hasn't it? It has been over 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> when did we start officially? Do you know? Was it October 2010? Yeah, it was October 2010. October 2010. Yeah, so we were deep into it by this point 10 years ago. Yeah, but I think we really didn't get going like with a website and our all of our links to podcasting platforms until about 2012, 2013. Oh, okay. Yeah, and really. Then we started to really cycle them out for like five years. I think we had five straight years of 12 interviews. Let me open up my calendar. I have so many things open on my desktop. I Me too. It's oh, like, don't even get me started. It's crazy. Oh, my God. Well, here we are. So you have your clips? Well, yes and no. Mostly okay. no, but some, some, something yes. Okay. I okay. have three. Okay. I have one, but it's 10 minutes and 30 seconds. Oh, well, then <laughs> that, that's about, I have one that's six and then a couple that are like three or four. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I have some questions for you. Okay. Uh, so should we do an official start? I guess I feel like what we could do is we could, I like kind of the informal start when we were trying to figure out how to record. So we might. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I feel like this is, I feel like this is less, less of a formal thing. I don't know. I have like okay. an image in my head of how it sounds and I don't even know if reality is going to match that image or if trying to recreate that image is just going to make it sound artificial. But I figured it would just be fun if it were kind of just you and I talking the way we do. I think so. Okay. So I do have some questions for, I don't even know where to start. Jim, with questions well let's no i have start. questions written down but i'm not sure where, where we start in terms of like can well, i just I ask go yeah, ahead go ahead no can you I, go ahead <laughs> i just i just want to say that it's been 10 years dude and like we started in a little coffee shop on 60th street and broadway it's a starbucks yeah i remember the day very clearly i do too i can i can put myself <laughs> right there right and that was over 10 years ago that we conceived of this and then about just a little over 10 years ago we started it can we talk about why i i remember i remember why i wanted to get involved in this originally do you remember anything about that conversation i do oh, okay go ahead so no no, no your... you go first this time <laughs> but well, I... okay so one thing to remember is this, this is 2010 Right. So the iPhone right. had been out for a couple of years. Like, you know, I think the iPhone launched in 2007. So podcasts were new then. Well, new. relatively new. Totally. Right? Huge. I mean, it's now, cool. now it's like everyone has a podcast and has right. forever, but we, we were kind of, kind of getting involved when nobody knew what the hell they were doing. Including us. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we were both really, we, we, we both, one, one thing we had in common was that we really loved the, the um playing shakespeare series mm -hmm. and so we talked about that and we thought well how, how would you modernize that for the podcast era 
Right. And that was what, it, so that was our, that was kind of our guiding principle there. But I right. think the driving motivation, at least for me, was that um, I'd always wanted to teach at a university. That's exactly so, what I remember. Yeah. So I'd been on this path for, for well over a, a decade, but I had just started to seriously look at, at um, how to apply for teaching jobs. And um, the, the descriptions generally talked about having some body of scholarship that you could talk about. Exactly. And I had no idea at the time what that meant. Right. <laughs> and I just but was I, like, let's do something. Let's create something. We were both like, yeah, let's create it. So the, yeah, so this was kind of born out of that need to create some kind of a some kind of scholarship. Do you think it helped your get your current position? I don't think so. I yeah, don't think I don't it really think. had anything to do with it. Because that because that happened like what two two years three years later. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't think it it has done anything for me professionally except that it's 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 been a joy to do and mm -hmm. I, I learned so much from all our guests so it's enriched right. my life enormously right just researching for this you know retrospective 10th anniversary at you know made me realize how much material there is there's 10 years of interviews there are a lot over 100 and we create right. a book out of it yeah we could that would be great. And then we would have to interview ourselves about our book. That's right. right. <laughs> um, and, but I will say, just to go back to the career thing, that I think this, this podcast is somewhat responsible for my job at Pace. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. And, you know, because Louis, we interviewed Louis. Um, I had already been friends with Chris. Can you see Kate? Say, say hi yeah. to Garrett. Kate. Hi, Kate. I just, I don't want to talk to mask on. How are you? <laughs> I don't like any kind of like responsibility. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. I was just listening to your podcast last night. What you were? was I listening to? Who's the latest woman? Susan Hayward. Susan mm -hmm. Hayward, yeah. Was she was magnificent, that. wasn't she? Actually, what's that? She was magnificent, wasn't she? She was, yeah. Um, a friend in the building asked me to send her the link. State of Shakespeare, and so in doing that, I was like, "Oh, let me listen to this." Did Jim it's tell you that? Like, I had a conversation about um, my feelings about um, uh, mindfulness in Shakespeare. Yes, we didn't talk. We didn't talk about that yet. But uh, Kate, Kate was feeling that um, Shakespeare was not the characters in Shakespeare was, were not mindful. I was because they were not, that. Yeah. Well, she was she was proffering that as a hypothesis, and because they're always so much longing, they always want to be somewhere else or. Be a different person, or I was just listening to Charles and say they oh where I glove on that hand. They want to be an object, right? Oh wow! Um, but I said actually they are very mindful because yeah. they're very much in the moment, saying this is how I feel. There's you know like yeah. you go to the providence of a sparrow in Hamlet. I'm just saying it would be a good debate, right? Well, they do tend to be very self-reflective from time to time, but whether they have found sort of an inner peace in in the moment is right. is a good is a good question. I think I tend to think not because I don't think that tends towards dramatic conflict, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the Dalai Lama, there was really no role for the Dalai no. Lama. But see, okay, so no, maybe this is my definition. I don't necessarily equate mindfulness with inner peace. 
I just think mindfulness is a, a path to inner peace. Oh, well. But I don't think, I, I don't equate it to it. I mean, I... I think mindfulness creates inner peace. Yeah, it's a path, yeah. right? Mm. But it's not, just because you're mindful doesn't mean necessarily that you have inner peace. Like, have you arrived at inner peace if you're mindful? I don't know. I don't know if I have if I know what the agreed definition of mindfulness is either. I my yeah. use of the term comes entirely from my colleague with whom I've done some study abroad, and it always seems to come to bear when the students are in crisis because something has gone awry somehow. And yeah. her practice is to get everyone to sort of reframe the way they're thinking about this crisis as an opportunity to grow and learn and right. uh, enjoy the adventure. And they're not knowing. Yeah, it, it feels um, like that's when people turn to mindfulness as opposed to just turning to it on a daily basis when everything is okay. And I also really like the idea of a course that would be entirely the the speeches, the um, the big. Oh, yeah. 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 That was kind of a cool yeah, suggestion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that idea. Yeah. Anyway, okay. I'm yeah. going to... It's great to see you. It's been a long time. Yeah, really yeah. great to see you. And we, we should interview her. We should. Why don't or we? Or she should interview us. Maybe I could interview you. I mean, is there a question that you would like us to ask you? Why? Why? <laughs> Let me ask you. Why? Why, why Kate? Why? Why, Kate? Okay, I've got my my young boyfriend's here. <laughs> Bye, Gary. Bye. Hey, that was nice. Yeah, she's awesome. We should definitely interview her. That would be fun, right? It would be. Well, I'm not sure where we were, but like, I've got a question for you. Okay. Okay, so how has the state of Shakespeare changed or evolved over the years? Or maybe, what, what, what do you think is the biggest change, biggest evolution? That's a good question. Um, I think that, uh, you know, originally we, you know, we were thinking about creating this uh, podcast to help young actors explore the text and have a have sort of a guidebook to exploring the text. Um, and I think we played that card out really well. And now we've branched beyond that. And we're just talking Shakespeare um, in whatever form it takes. I mean, I just mentioned Andy Muir. I mean, he wrote a book about Shakespeare and Dylan. I don't think that would have been on our radar 10 years ago. I think we would have been like, nah, because it's not about education. That's a really good actors. point. Yeah. I feel like we've we've sort of grown into the title this the state of Shakespeare, which I have I ever told you this? I hated that title at the beginning. I hated oh, the you name. Did? I did. I think, I, we, I think I knew that. I did you? Yeah, yeah. Well, then okay. That just goes to show. I. <laughs> I think, but but I I don't think we had a better alternative. We didn't. Right. It was the best of the bad ideas. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but now it's we've really grown into it because that's what we're about, kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's like, what's going on? Yeah. What about um, you? What are the changes? What's What's the biggest change for you? I think the biggest change for me was shifting to the virtual environment, and we did that really early. We did that. We did that. I think in 2013. When you moved to Florida. Yeah, yeah, months after, because I I was still going back to New York to do some of these interviews. That's right. In That's person. Right. Um, That's right. But yeah, in about 2013, we tried to figure out how are we going to do this remotely, and we discovered Skype. Remember mm -hmm. when that was yes. brand new and none yep. of our guests knew what that was or how to use it? Yeah, yep. and we had to we had to buy a third party application to even record. That's right. What was it called? Call recorder. You yeah. Know but I think that that made an important shift for us too because when 
I was listening to old episodes, and the sound quality when we were in the studio is fantastic. It's uh, so unbelievable. good, and it's never never been that good. But the the flip side of that is, at the beginning when we started, we were so precious about the interviews in post. I mean, oh, super right. Editing would take hours and hours and hours. We were worried about about trimming milliseconds off of yeah. pauses and getting rid of breaths and this and that and they they do sound fantastic but we were really getting bogged down in post and now i don't think yeah. no it's as quick much. now it's like a week we could turn one over in a week we do it once a month but yeah I mean, well we, if we were disciplined about about the time that we spend talking to our guests it would be a lot easier we have gotten more disciplined thanks to uh thanks to uh zoom yeah, that's true. When when we had those forty five minute limits, we thought, right. "Well, this is really working for yeah, us. Yeah. Let's <laughs> keep that. <laughs> Let's keep it." It's hard though because they're so fascinating. I, I love oh these god. conversations. Oh my god, there's just like there's so many. I mean, when we came up with this idea of this interview, we were like, "Let's choose three, our top three, right?" Mm -hmm. And and originally, my thought was like, "Oh, that's hard," because there's so many, and I want to include like, I mean, I can think of ten right off the top of my head that I. Would, haven't included in my top three that I would like to. But yeah, I mean, they're just like, just reviewing them. It, the discussions are just awesome. They're just so fun to listen to. So that gets me to another question for you, Jim. What are the strangest podcasts? What are the strangest episodes that we've had? Oh, okay. Some early ones. Okay. Some early ones. And this is not to say when you say strange not this is not bad it's just like what were we thinking or like what was this person thinking sure right okay yeah so we did one where there was a group a theater company that was doing a modern text richard the third i think was it no called... fear shakespeare yes they were doing a no fear shakespeare that was yes. on my list too yes yes and I remember the woman's name, um, the the guy who who did the the speech was actually fairly interesting. But like I was like, we would never have done that. I don't think now. That brings up another question, which is, well, how do we get our guests through blind luck? We, we actually we've gotten through hook by hook and by crook. Like there's so many ways. Kate has gotten us a, a bunch. Like John Douglas Thompson was Kate's get. We've just cold called people, right? Mm -hmm. It started with friends and family, essentially, right? Like, who do we know who's out there? Um, but a lot of people reached out to us. I think the I think the facing page people re reached out to us. Yeah, we have had that. That that always thrills me. I get a kick when someone's publicist reaches out to us and says, mm -hmm. "So so and so would like to speak to you," which is great. I, love that. Yeah. I don't know how That's they cool. discovered that we exist. You've done some work to you know, to develop an audience. I've done basically nothing, but you have, you've created a social media presence. And, and yeah. if anyone knows about us, it's because of what you're doing on Facebook. And I don't think so. No, I think if anybody knows about us, it's because somehow, like, I'm not saying that the, I think the Facebook is, and the Twitter is really funny. Um, and I don't keep up with it as much as I used to. Uh, but I think, you know, we've gotten some donations from people completely out of the blue yeah you know who say i love your podcast i use it all the time blah 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 and i'm like i don't even know how they found us um, but i think it's like if you google shakespeare podcasts we'll be up there um, yeah i wish we had more 
I wish we had more contact with our listeners. I wish they would they would reach out to us and just say hey sometimes because it's yeah. always a, it's always a thrill when we do hear, hear from someone and it's a little bit surprising because I feel like we really do this just for me and you. And no. if somebody's listening, it's like a bonus. Right, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, we do. I mean, we got we get listeners. I mean, every time we we publish, our website gets like a bump in views. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, and then you can follow like, you know, the stats. Um, but I do wish we had more interaction with mm-hmm. uh, with our audience, and that actually leads me to a question. Oh, okay. For you, what would you do differently? What do you feel like we're missing? That's a really good question. And I haven't, I think that this is the idea of creating a community where there's some interaction and some conversation that would, that would be a a nice thing. And I think we've attempted to do that in different ways. You know, I think our website makes resources available. I don't think it's been as effective as, as it could be. I mean, I would love it if we had something like, you know, how, that when when we do when we do a speech typically we do a scanned page yeah right it would be nice if there was some sort of collaborative document where there could be some dialogue about you know interpretations and choices that that people have found within the text yeah you know it's interesting because i would love that too i mean that's all about this creating a community of people and and i think i don't know if you're connected to the shakespeare forum we interviewed um tyler moss He's uh, and he was a great interview, um, but he has this thing called the Shakespeare Forum, and they have a very lively conversation on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in order to create that kind of thing you're talking about, it wouldn't be on our website; it would have to be on one of the social media yeah. giants. And that I, takes time. It does take time. I feel like that's for, and in a way, that's kind of for other people. Like we are teachers of acting who have a passion for Shakespeare and we do this on the side, but there are, there are people who we have interviewed. We know them who are Shakespeare scholars or producing or, or Shakespeare producing organ in the case of Shakespeare forum, mm-hmm. they're a producing organization. And I think that this is just one of the many, um, but yeah, we don't, this is a side gig. This is why. So what would you do? What would you do differently? Monetize. <laughs> get paid for this. <laughs> no, I don't even want to get paid. Like as someone was pointing out, like, just get one sponsor who kicks us like 50 bucks, you know, a month or something like that to put up their little, you know, their logo or something mm-hmm. just to, just to, you know, cause I, I can't tell you anytime. I mean, I'm, you know, New Yorkers are all about that. So anytime I talk about a podcast, they're like, Oh, did you monetize? I mean, literally it's like the third question I get or the mm-hmm. second question after what is it about? And you know, where can I find it? I think in a way we were kind of ahead of the curve and and then way behind because we started to to do this before monetizing a podcast was even a thing and we were already rolling. And now, now the reason people are doing podcasts is to monetize. Right. So we kind of, I mean, I don't like, there's no way we'd ever make a living doing this, but I wouldn't mind like, you know, not having to do another Kickstarter campaign keep this going although that was i don't know how many years ago but and we're still going on it yeah that was pretty Um, and i think it would be fun like you know to do like little promos or something that would be like (laughs) yeah heinz ketchup presents yeah well what we need to do is all your blood needs use heinz ketchup (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> we need to get some kid who really wants to be a producer. I know we do. We would, I would love like occasionally I've had students who like, can I help? And I've said, yeah, and they've edited, but I would love someone to like be able to mm-hmm. be like our, our day to day. Yeah. Social person. And thus we would have to monetize in order to pay that person. So another question for you. Yeah. Mm, I love this. This is great. Big surprises that you've experienced. What a terrible, I feel like I should have done a better job of writing these questions out. Oh, but no, it's me. <laughs> We're not, this is informal, right? Yeah. Informal. What's a big surprise? I thought uh-huh. Jim Shapiro was a big surprise. Yeah, in what way? That we got him. Yeah. I mean, to me, that he's a, you know, he's a bright star in the Shakespeare firmament. Um, Absolutely. And it was great to get him. And I also think that the timing of that interview, which was literally, I think right before the 2016 election mm-hmm. was really fascinating. Cause he also had, you know, something to say about that as well. Um, big, what other big surprises? I've got one for you. Yeah. I want to hear yours. Cause all questions come out of something that you've thought of. <laughs> A big surprise was the play on series. Oh, that 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 you ended up liking that. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of lumped us both together as being, you know, yeah, initially, no, no, I... initially queer, queer is queerless the word I'm looking for? Yeah, not not queerless. quite skeptical, like one notch below skeptical. Right. Um, but then we we interviewed Adt Kapil and Liz Engelman, and total that totally turned my thinking around about that. So that was yeah, a, I mean a surprise. Yeah, I I would agree. They were their authenticity was fantastic, and the fact that they were like you know, really putting massive amounts of thought into the writing of it, and then we interviewed the founder of it, Dave Hitz, mm-hmm. and I thought that that was uh, that went a long way to like you know he he reveres Shakespeare, and we so we've been engaged with that project off and on, yeah. for many years, and have really enjoyed watching how that's evolved. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember what we were talking about when Kate came along. We were talking about how, like, I believe that the state of Shakespeare was helpful in getting uh, me the job at Pace because yeah. I we interviewed Louis and then I was very good friends with Chris. You knew Chris, and it went Louis, Chris, and now Jim at Pace. Yeah, I think when you've been doing something for as long as we have, it has repercussions throughout your your life in, in ways that you may or may not be aware. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here's an interesting one. Where's the most interesting place you've been while interviewing? <laughs> That's a good one. And I, I'm guessing that you, your answer might be in your bathroom. Or maybe there no, are no. stairways. Correct. A lot of stairways. In, a lot know. of stairwells at Canardia. Yeah, yeah I've done quite a few in Carolyn's walk-in closet. But I don't think that's too unusual. I think every voiceover actor has had that experience. Yeah, there's a, yeah, but I still think like the fact that, you know, I think... For me, the stairwell, because it's a rickety wooden stairwell, and then about two interviews in, the light bulb burned out, and um, <laughs> I didn't I didn't want people to know that I was there, and so I didn't even mess with the light bulb, so like, I was being lit by the light of the screen. That's so funny. In the dark, yeah. And like, like clandestinely was, recording podcasts. Yeah, yeah, and in the wintertime, it was super cold, so I had to, like, I was bundled up, because, you know, there was no heat in the stairwell, it was a stairwell mm-hmm. to the roof the building so i think that was for me the most interesting i'll tell you what's been surprising for me is encountering the work of folks that we've interviewed after we've interviewed them Mm -hmm. just been floored by how brilliant 
these artists are. One that comes to mind is Blaine Swen from Unbelievable. the Improvised Shakespeare Company, who I think we originally interviewed him because they were recommended to us by someone. Yeah. By Illinois Shakes. I think it was, yeah, no, definitely Illinois Shakes because there was a relationship. Yeah. yeah. So we interviewed we interviewed Blaine, and it, and it was fun and, and really enjoyed talking to him. But then I got a chance to see the Improvised Shakespeare Company and was yeah. absolutely floored. That's amazing. It's great. I think that's something that we have not actually taken advantage of as much as we should have. Because there was a time when we were, like, very linked with New Jersey Shakespeare Festival, Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival, and we were, like, friendly with their people and they would say, anytime you want a ticket, just let us know. Um, well, with a family, it's hard, right? I know, like I know. we could we could have tickets to every every show we want to go see, but we've not monetized, and we've not <laughs> taken advantage of free ticket offers. That's the thing is that that we squeeze. Like I don't know about you, but I definitely squeeze the state of Shakespeare into the cracks that I have in my. Thus, we have one a month. Yeah, and every so often, every couple of years, when when we have to renew something that we pay for, we always have this brief conversation where you kind of say, do you, are you still, do you still want to do this? And the answer is always, yeah, let's do it. And so yeah, we have, it kind of has a, yeah. I mean, and, and it's, we, I think, I don't know about you, but for me, I've sort of gotten to into a rhythm with it. Uh, I know we have, usually have like this like spate of interviews over a month long period or so mm -hmm. like we have in January. And then we just parcel them out. And I've, I've sort of gotten into that rhythm and it's a nice rhythm. Our rhythms, though, are totally different otherwise because I am in this academic year rhythm, mm -hmm. and and they don't yours and mine don't sync up, mm -hmm. right? So it seems like someone is always perpetually either in finals week, or <laughs> showcases, or launching a new class or something, and right. and they never we, our breaks never quite quite sync up. So somebody's always you know pulling. 16-hour days and trying to find a time to do an interview. Right. And that's why I have to get an academic job that's permanent so that we can be on the same schedule. Yeah, from your mouth to God's ears. So, okay. So, Should we talk about those interviews that really inspire us? Yes. You start. Tell me the interview that... No, I'm, no, no. Well, I, you okay, have to ahead, start because I only ended up with one. Okay. And you ended up with several. Uh, well, I have three shorties. Okay. So what's first on your list? Not in order of preference, but where okay. are we going to kick this off? Okay, I'll just say the first one I thought of instantly was Louis Coliani. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talked about that, didn't we? Well, let's play the clip. The clip, yes. I'll pl let's play the clip. I want to play it. It's, I just want to give a little background. He was full of information. Mm -hmm. um, just a delightful guest. Uh, and so we published what we call asides, and it's when we have a guest that sometimes we go off on random uh, you know, journeys, side, side passages, and we publish that side passage in a separate little shorter version of an interview. And we call them asides, very Shakespearean. Mm -hmm. um, we've done a bunch of them. Uh, but this was Louis Coliani reading Sonnet 65. And it was, he chose Sonnet 65 because his writing partner, Cal Prittner, who helped or co-authored How to Speak Shakespeare, had just passed away. And he was feeling that this was a very uh, good way of honoring Cal's memory, as well as talking about the subjects that he wanted to talk about. So, Louis okay. Coliani doing Sonnet 65. 
Cal thought it would be a good idea to collaborate on a book. Actually, the title of our book, How to Speak Shakespeare, I think it is descriptive enough, but it's not what we wanted to call our book. I think, you know, we we would have thought of that title as kind of presumptuous, but uh, it ended up being called that because the publisher said if we called it what we wanted to, which was American Shakespeare, Sound and Sense. <laughs> That no one, no one would buy it because they wouldn't know what it was for. <laughs> Call it How to Speak Shakespeare. Well, it's unambiguous anyway. I'll tell you what. I know from, for instance, what Shakespeare wrote in his sonnets that bringing words to life was something that he called a miracle. And so I think when we process this language through our bodies and it comes out from the genuine impulse of what we mean to say, and then it's received by somebody who is then changed by what we said. Well, that's bringing the language back to life. I would like to mention one more thing about the miracle part. It's sonnet number 65. Since brass, nor stone, nor earth, nor boundless sea, but sad mortality, or sways their power. So there's nothing corporeal that's going to last. Everything is going to turn to dust and decay. How with this rage shall beauty hold a plea? whose action is no stronger than a flower. So it's a sonnet about how can I reconcile the fact that the person I love is so beautiful, but that beauty is going to decay. And so, you know, the sonnet goes on to really lament this, call it a fearful meditation. Where, alack, shall time's best jewel from time's chest lie hid? Time becomes a major character. Time's chest is a coffin. The jewel is a person in their tomb. Or what strong hand can hold time's swift foot back? Or who his spoil of beauty can forbid? Oh, none. And that seems to be the end of the sonnet. And if that's the end of the sonnet, then we're all in despair. But then you get what Kristen Linklater calls the little big word, unless. And unless changes everything. It brings hope, you know. It leaves you hanging. What? What? No one can the spoil of beauty forbid. We're all just going to decay and that's it. Unless this miracle hath might that in black ink my love may still shine bright. So the fact that I can say this to you today from Shakespeare's words proves the miracle, doesn't it? Because I just brought Shakespeare's words back to life about the beauty he appreciated in another person and how that beauty would probably die. But because he wrote it in black ink, it did still shine bright when he wrote it. And 400 years later, it still shines bright when I bring those words through my being and say them to you. Lewis, could we ask you to do that sonnet again in its entirety if you have just one more moment? Since brass nor stone nor earth, nor boundless sea, but sad mortality or sways their power. How with this rage shall beauty hold a plea whose action is no stronger than a flower? Oh, how can summer's honey breath hold out against the rackful siege of battering days when rocks impregnable are not so stout, nor gates of steel so strong, but time decays? Oh, fearful meditation, where, alack, can time's best jewel from time's chest lie hid? Or what strong hand can hold time's swift foot back? Or who his spoil of beauty can forbid? 
Oh, none, unless this miracle hath might that in black ink my love may still shine bright. And with that, we're bridging a 400-year love affair. Yes, that's right. Lewis, thank you so much. Um, there's a couple of special things about that interview. Um, one was he was one of the people that sort of we worked at getting because there's a lot of back and forth before get, finally getting him. I think we had him, and then he's, he had something happen, and then we had to reschedule. Mm-hmm. So we were both eager to, to get him. His, you know, we had both read his book, How to Speak Shakespeare. It's also, I think, the last interview that we did in the same space together. Is that right? Yes, and I think it was in that period of time after you moved to Florida and you had come back to New York and we had rented like a space somewhere, maybe it was in the SAG after offices, and, but he was remote. Mm-hmm. And, but we were in the same room. And I remember twice looking over at you and both of us having the same emotional response to what was happening in the interview. Because it was a very emotional interview. It was. And I remember both of us, like, like one time it was a very sort of, like, uh, melancholy, sad response because he was dealing with Cal Prittner's death and you and I were feeling it. And then there was another where we were just, like, our minds were blown and I looked over and your, your eyes were as wide as mine felt. Um, and we, it was a really lovely moment of sharing for the two of us in the same space. So, the, as yeah. well as the brilliance of Louis Coliani. Those are the reasons I thought of you. So what else is on your list, Jim? Uh, okay, so this one uh, I, I chose for a couple of reasons. Um, one is because uh, I think he's super clear. Um, and he's a great educator, and his name is Charles Tuthill. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very influential in my uh, career as an actor. He helped me through Casio, um, and I think that's one of the places where he started realizing how good he was as a coach. He ended up at the Atlantic Theater Company, um, and the other reason I wanted to, to share him is because he also passed very suddenly and very early. And it was a very sad time that that happened. So I thought I would share Charles Tuthill. And uh, it's a very short clip, actually. Um, And it's talking about one of the reasons he loves Shakespeare. And I think it's a really great call to arms for actors. And I think it's really relevant in this day and age On the one hand, you have to be living and breathing and being human in your approach to any kind of Shakespeare. And these sonnets were not meant to be acted. They were meant to be read. So it's tricky to make a sonnet seem very spontaneous in a way because they're so structured. But in the plays, you should never notice as an audience member that poetry is being spoken. On the other hand, it is verse, and I believe in honoring the verse when there's verse versus when there's prose. There should be a difference, and while the audience shouldn't be aware of it, the actor should be aware of it, and there are different rules to follow whether you're in verse or prose. 
And I think it's something to aspire to, that it is an art form, and it's something that we should reach for and make beautiful rather than just turn into ordinary language. It's subtle and it's beautiful to me. I like the idea that these characters are not able to express themselves well. And that is why they were able to come up with particular language or where there is a series of words in order to try to articulate something. You know, we often see a repetition of language in yeah. order to try to express something. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Yes, and in, in that case, it's a word that's being repeated, but I'm also interested in words where there is a development of an idea and the, where the language is changing, but somehow that character is not able to express something and so uses a different word and uses a different word and uses a different word and then finally lands on the word that is able to articulate the idea. And this is what is interesting when it comes to the, the structure of verse versus prose and why a character might change a tactic at the end of a verse line in order to try to articulate what is coming next. Charles Tuthill. Okay, and what about now you have to go with you? Okay, well, first of all, apologies, because when we first conceived the idea of doing uh, this for our 10th anniversary, we said, let's pick three, our three favorite. Yeah. And I knew right away what one of mine would be. I think I knew, we, yeah. we agreed, yep. of, of course, on several of them. And then I had, I had one that just popped to mind. And then... When I went to look for my second and third, I went down this incredible rabbit hole of going through our archives, and it just became impossible to pick because mm -hmm. there's so much out there. Oh, my God. And I, I don't know why this one was the first that popped to mind, but it's one of our very early guests. This is, I think we've been doing this for like three months or something. But the guest is Ben Steinfeld, who... Um, who I had a, a chance to get to know and, and, and work with. And, and uh, he's, he's a friend, although I haven't spoken to him in, in a long time. And this was shortly after their, he's Fiasco Theater, right? Yeah, that's right. And so this was, this was kind of in the midst of the Cymbeline production that they were doing, which was getting right. a lot of buzz. I mean, it had gotten a rave review in the New York Times. And a lot of, it was a very high profile production. And they mounted it in New York, I think, three different, Time, well, at three venues in succession because the buzz was building, and so yeah. they, you know, had a brief run, and then they they booked a slightly longer run, and then and then they had an off Broadway run for a while. So this was right in the midst of all of this, and he was gracious enough to come and spend some time talking to us. But Fiasco Theater at the time was really making waves. It was like a huge splash. They were kind of at the vanguard of the tiny cast Shakespeare phenomenon that came were, into vogue around that time. Yep, very much so. And of course, the production was amazing. I saw it twice in two different venues. And it was just um, kind of the, the kind of production that expands your whole notion of, of how Shakespeare could be done. And it makes you think for a while, this is absolutely how Shakespeare should always be done. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> Until the next thing comes along and you think, now this is how Shakespeare right. should always <laughs> Definitive, definitive. <laughs> but there was a time where I just couldn't, I absolutely couldn't get enough of this. Oh, it was so inspiring. And, and Ben came on to talk to us. And I started listening to the interview looking for that one crystal moment because, um, well, there's one thing that he mentions about how the word 
is the event. The text is the event. Yeah, he yeah was I was great. looking, I was looking for that moment, and I and I found it. But it's surrounded by so many gems that I had forgotten about, but that have subsequently worked them their way into what uh, I bring to the classroom. So it was fascinating for me to listen to this and think, oh my God, I use that, I use that, I use that, I use that. Mm -hmm. It all comes from Ben. So this this is a little bit of a longer clip. I'm, we're doing the first, I think, ten minutes and 30 seconds of the interview, but there is a lot in this 10 minutes and 30 seconds. It's a, a masterclass in, in Shakespeare. I love that because I think that's like kind of what we're trying to do. So each one of our podcasts, we wanted it to be like a masterclass. Yes. You know? We're not the teachers. The guest is the teacher and we're sort of the moderator. We're the dummies that they get to teach. Right. right exactly. <laughs> and I, and I, yeah. and I think that Ben was truly masterful. And I think you'll really enjoy listening to this because it's one of the early podcasts where the production values, we really spent time <laughs> making it sound as sweet as we possibly could. Right. Um, so this will be, this will take us back. Let's go back to February 2011. And this is Ben Steinfeld. You never want the language to become superfluous, right? It has to be the thing. We all know that, right? Oh, Shakespeare's language, it's all about language. What does that mean? What it means is that the language is the map. The language is the experience. It is thought in action. It is what's happening in the room. So it has to, on some level, be, your instrument has to be able to kind of allow that language to create something meaningful to happen. So that's, what, that's where you gotta start. Hello and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today we're talking with Ben Steinfeld. Hello, Ben. Hi, Garrett. Hi, Jim. Hello. How are you today? I'm great. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here. What brings you to the studio today? You do, Garrett. <laughs> you do. Yes, yes. Indeed, I invited you here today to talk about... Let's talk about Shakespeare, but uh, specifically our production of Cymbeline that happened recently and maybe some things that were revealed about acting and Shakespeare uh, in that process. Well, let's hope. So the piece that you've elected to bring in today is yeah. from Simling. Could you set this scene for us a little bit? Sure. This is Act 2, Scene 2, and this is Yakimo, who I played in the production. And what we know is that he's made a bet with Posthumus imme immediately upon meeting him, as often happens in the case <laughs> of Shakespeare. People say, hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? Let's immediately engage with something preposterous now, which is great. <laughs> Small talk is not very prevalent in Shakespeare, is it? Just a quick sidebar, which is that so many times in contemporary plays, actors are responsible for generating the life of the scene outside of the language because contemporary playwrights are interested in the ways in which language don't represent authentic experience. And the nice thing about Shakespeare is that because your experience is fully bound up inside what you say, you don't have to do quite as much work outside of the text, but the text is complicated enough to require all of you to be with it, right? So anyway, we've made this bet, and the bet is that I can uh, seduce and sleep with his wife, and he disagrees. So we make a big bet on that, and I go to, from Italy to England to see her, I pull an act on her where I try to pretend that he's sleeping around with a bunch of hookers in Italy and that he's unfaithful to her, and I suggest the best way to get back at him is to take a little revenge of our own in the bedroom. She doesn't buy it. She says, get the hell out of here. I improvise an apology, and I say, oh, by the way, I've got some very valuable stuff with me that I'd like you to take care of for the night while I'm here. She says, okay. She says, sure, I'll leave it in my bedchamber, and I say, it's going to be in a trunk. See you later. So... She goes to sleep, and Yakimo Jack, pops out of the box. <laughs> Jack in the box. You got it. 
And Jack says, he says this, the crickets sing. And man's o'er-labored sense repairs itself by rest. Our Tarquin thus did softly press the rushes, ere he waked the chastity he wounded. Cytherea, how bravely thou becom'st thy bed, fresh lily, and whiter than the sheets, that I might touch, but kiss, one kiss, rubies unparagoned, how dearly they do it. Tis her breathing that perfumes the chamber thus. The flame of the taper bows toward her and would underpeep her lids to see the enclosed lights now canopied under these windows, white and azure, laced with blue of heaven's own tinct. But my design, to note the chamber, I will write all down. Such and such pictures, there the window, such the adornment of her bed, the arras, figures, why, such and such, and the contents of the story. Ah, but some natural notes about her body, above ten thousand meaner movables, would testify to enrich mine inventory. O oh, sleep, thou ape of death, lie dull upon her, and be her sense but as a monument, thus in a chapel lying, come off. Come off, as slippery as the Gordian knot was hard, tis mine, and this will witness outwardly, as strongly as the conscience does within, to the matting of her lord. On her left breast a mole sank spotted like the crimson drops at the bottom of a cowslip. Here's a voucher stronger than ever law could make. This secret will force him to think I have picked the lock and tain the treasure of her honor. No more. To what end? Why should I write this down that's riveted, screwed to my memory? I have enough. To the trunk again and shut the spring of it. Swift, swift, you dragons of the night, that dawning may bear the raven's eye. I lodge in fear, though this a heavenly angel. Hell is here. One, two, three. Time, time. Thank you. Thank you. Geez, it's awfully lengthy. (laughs) Sorry about that. It's a perfect length. It's awesome. So, Jim, you have a few questions about Well, I was going to start with, with this one, which I thought was a good sort of general question, which is, if there is one teaching point that is suggested by this material, mm-hmm. what is it? Well, one of my main things, especially when you're talking about a long chunk of text where you speak by yourself, is you have to do what we call let each thing be what it is. Sometimes when you have an extended period of text or it's something that's in a monologue book or something, you sort of think, oh, this is a monologue. But the person you're playing doesn't know they're about to do a monologue. Right? They have one idea, and then they have the next idea, and then they have the next idea, and then that might make them reflect on a kind of broader idea about the way the world works, and then as in this speech, they go, wait a minute, what the fuck am wait a minute, what the hell am I talking about? I've got to get back to my, <laughs> the reason I'm in this scene, which is to make some notes about the bedroom so I can convince him that I was here. 
Right. So that that's the thing that is of most interest to me, foundationally, acting-wise, about this piece, is really letting each thing be what it is and letting each thing be a discovery. Right. So, yeah, and, and it seems to me that the, the piece is, I mean, you can break it in a variety of ways, but he spends a lot of time talking about her in the beginning. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's I think it's a debate as to whether he does kiss her or not. Right. There's a mid-stop there. But then he, and then, like you said, he remembers himself mm-hmm. uh, somewhere around line 14. I have the numbers, you don't. Right. But then, and this is this is a line maybe we can talk about to begin with. It's one of the ones you pointed out, Garrett. Why such and such? During that section, he says such five times. And then line 17 ends in what uh, is a possible Alexandrine with double pyrrhic trochee. And, Where is that? Uh, this would be starting with why such and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, right there, yeah. And uh, to me, one of the things that came, because he goes right after that line, he goes back to her. Right. And so it seems to me that he kind of gets bored with his plan, and he goes, ah, yada, 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 but let's go look at this one again, because she's the one I'm really interested in. Could be. Yeah. I mean, he does say, ah, at the beginning of that line, which which is one of those things that suggests to me a discovery. So what we always try to do is to make sure that, that the breath, I mean, the word inspiration, I believe, means actually to breathe in. Yeah. So we always try to inspire the next idea with breath. And in rehearsal, you might sometimes see us activating that a little bit more than is necessary. But what we're trying to do is to send the body the signal that this idea is actually being received. And then you can just speak it. Rather than doing lots of acting in and around the language, we try to receive the things we say and the things that our scene partners say from the same place that we're putting out from in terms of language. So he would not, in my opinion, would not have the thought that says, oh, wait a minute, why am I writing down what's in the room? I should write down the details about her actual physical body. He wouldn't have that thought if he hadn't started by going through all the different things that are in the room. So Shakespeare is writing a thought process. And so part of what we're trying to figure out in rehearsal is what is the thought process here? And how does that create to experience? And as you pointed out, there's also a lot of physical things that he's doing, things that are related to her body. So you want to make sure that the text that you're speaking lines up with a physical activity. So when you say, I will write all down, that's a good time to pull out the notebook, right? It's Shakespeare telling you what to do as right. an actor. We know that, when, as you guys know, all of that, all of those physical instructions rest here in the text, right? I think that Helena monologue you were playing me before from a, another program is, uh, begins with, then I confess, here, on my knee. Right. Well, good, good opportunity to take a knee there right. and see what that gives you experientially rather than just being like, oh, gee, people were just kneeling all the time in Shakespeare. I guess it's no big deal. Right, it is. And it's like the uh, opening of Hamlet where he says, friends to this ground. Some right. some might say he's on the ground. Right, and it's amazing to me how many of my acting students are, are afraid to actually receive those gifts because they're afraid that it's going to put them into some kind of uncreative space. Right, and it's not... You know, it's not organic or something. And typically, the, all the organic stuff comes as a result of actually letting yourself do the map. It's not that there's nothing organic there. It's that there's touch points for the experience. Yeah, and, and the text is your map. I mean, it, I mean, and you can go off map if you care to. Or there's a lot of, I mean, the map is, there's a lot of different roads. Remember, Shakespeare's telling us a lot of things, right? The room smells a certain way. It looks a certain way. The candle is bending in a certain kind of way. Right. But these are all things that we know would not have necessarily been true of the actual performance space. So it's all it's all contained in the language. Oh, he's just so brilliant and articulate and creative and has such a strong artistic vision. And I and I and I think that Ben was truly masterful. I mean, he was at the top of his game and he's he does teach too, which I think helps. All right. Before I get to my last one, 
I do want to give a couple shout outs to some people who I think have been terrific, uh, who very influential. I mean, we can't list all 100 plus guests, but I thought that there were a couple that really stood out that sort of honorable mentions. Eric Tucker. Yeah. Um, he was really fascinating. He's got a theater company that also is really Bedlam. Hot. Yeah, Bedlam. And it's still hot. Um, and he was just his imaginative work was amazing. Um, Deborah Ann Bird, I thought was fantastic. She, mm-hmm. She's the Harlem Shakespeare Festival. Also, Lisa Volpe, mm-hmm. I thought was great. And I, I almost want her back because, I, if I remember correctly, the recording was like over a phone, over Skype, and it was like indistinct. And she had just, you know, drops of wisdom. Um, so those were three that were close on my list. Um, do you have any others that you were toying with? Well, I think... <laughs> When we single out three, we're sliding, you know, 97 plus. I know, you can't. Oh, there's, know. It's, it's really hard. Um, yeah, I always, I love it. I love it when uh, our friends come on. That's always very special mm-hmm. to me. No, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't think I want to single okay. anyone out. They know who they know. are and we're grateful to them. I can't tell you, the other thing that's happened as a result of this is how incredibly generous people are with their time because we're not paying them. We're just asking them essentially a favor. And not only are they willing, but often they're just, they're like, I, I, I just love talking about Shakespeare and just, you know, providing a forum like this for people to just talk about this stuff, I think has been enlightening to me and how just generous people are with their time. That's lovely. Who did you choose for your third and final best of? I, I choose this for a couple of reasons. I'll tell you the reasons. My wife helped get this person for us. I knew this was who you were going to choose. Number two is he is regarded as one of the best Shakespearean actors of our time. Uh, number three, it's also one of the last interviews that we did in person with the guest in the room. Number four, his... He, uh, if you recall, he was a little late to the interview. Um, it was at the SAG after offices. and I remember. And, it, you know, so the interview started off in, in a funky place, but it settled down and it was really great. And number five, when he performed, that was one of the exciting things about doing it in person, is that you got to see the person do the work. And I know that for me, and I'm pretty sure if I remember for you, we're pretty blown away by his performance, even in the studio. Yeah, this was a special moment. This would have been on my list as well. So I chose John Douglas Thompson, mm-hmm. and I hadn't listened to it in a while, and so I obviously just listened to it again. I haven't listened to this in a long time. I can't wait to hear it again. Yeah, and so this is uh, this is John Douglas Thompson talking Shakespeare. Horatio, thou art e'en as just a man as ever my conversation coped withal. Nay, do not think I flatter. For what advancement may I hope from thee that no revenue hast but thy good spirits to feed and clothe thee? Why should the poor be flattered? No, let the candied tongue lick absurd pomp and crook the pregnant hinges of the knee where thrift may follow fawning. Dost thou hear? Since my dear soul was mistress of her choice and could of men distinguish her election, she hath sealed thee for herself. For thou hast been as one in suffering all that suffers nothing. A man that fortune's buffets and rewards hast ta'en with equal thanks. 
And blessed are those whose blood and judgment are so well commingled that they are not a pipe for fortune's finger to sound what stop she please. Give me that man that is not passion slave, and I will wear him in my heart's core, I, in my heart of heart, as I do thee. Something too much of this. There is a play tonight before the king. One scene of it comes near the circumstance which I have told thee of my father's death. I prithee, when thou seest that act afoot, even with the very comment of thy soul, observe my uncle. If his occulted guilt does not itself unkennel in one speech, it is a damned ghost that we have seen, and my imaginations are as foul as Vulcan's stithy. Give him heedful note, for I mine eyes will rivet to his face and after we will both our judgments join in censure of his seeming. Thank you. Thank you very much. The first question I'd like to ask you is, when you first encounter the speech, what do you do with it as an actor? It starts off as words on a page. Well, I think I try to look at a way of turning the words on a page into performance. Now, in the process of that, I feel characters revealed through the text. So you look at the text to try to find clues to the character, which sometimes within the context of the punctuation, the words, how the verse is kind of laid out, any kind of stops, what the character is actually saying about himself or about other people gives you an idea of who this character actually is. So from there, it's then this more difficult process of kind of learning how to speak the language. And what I mean by that is In order to step into the character, you kind of have to realize that these are really smart, intelligent beings who have this innate ability to express themselves poetically. And then there's a physical aspect that then starts to come in. You know, once you get the information in your head, at least for me, then it can kind of drop down into my body and then it manifests itself in a physical way, which I'm trusting is okay and right for the character. I have to trust the fact that once I've been cast as the character that I either am the character, I will find it. He's super clear. Oh my God, as clear as a bell. It's a really good interview. But he, you know, all of the guests, even yours and the three that I mentioned, have found my, their way into my teaching as well. Um, so we've, we've definitely learned from our guests. All right. Well, there you have it. Yes. Our best of, our 10-year retrospective. Our 10-year retrospective. Um, do now, you think we'll still be doing this in another 10 years? Do you think we'll have a 20th or 25th retrospective? I hope so. I think so. I think we will. Because uh, the other thing that's happened, Garrett, is I think our friendship has blossomed. And I think I've gotten to you know, know you really well and consider you one of my closest friends. So. That's so sweet. Thank you, Jim. I agree. It's so surprising, isn't it? You know, I mean, I moved away from New York now. It's been, it's been a good long time. It's been mm-hmm. over eight years. And so many relationships that you kind of expect to endure, um, you know, they somehow get lost along the way. And, and others um, grow stronger, and ours is one that has. So yeah. I'm really appreciative of that. Now that I have another, now two reasons, you and my mother, to visit that part of Florida, I sense that I'll see you again. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Let's get vaccinated and let's make it happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Jim, thank you I have, so I have much. one other question. Oh, you do? 
Yes. Okay. Well, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's let's do that. Uh, I have one more question again. Okay. Go ahead. So, oh, I have one more question. Okay. Before, before we sign off, before we do our famous sign off, um, what is like if you were to say there's a common thread that you take from most of our guests in terms of our original like motto, which was teaching actors how to approach the text. What would that common thread be? Does that make sense? Yeah. I think it's curiosity. I, I think it's curiosity. I think it's this idea that this body of work that is Shakespeare's is so rich that it can sustain your curiosity for a lifetime and continues to bring rewards. And the way that you read Hamlet when you're 20 is very different from the way you read Hamlet when you're 30 or 40. And mm. I think all of our guests share that, that inquisitive spirit and, and this desire to, to figure it out, to, to explore the miracle of being through the lens of Shakespeare's work. Mm. Love that. That's terrific. What about you? I have a practical common thread and a similar common thread that you have. The practical common thread is just clarity, right? Just, it doesn't matter whether you're punctuation, whether you are a verse speaker, whether you love or hate Shakespeare, but all of our guests ultimately in one way or another, I can boil their approach down to, I need to be as clear as possible with this line, hmm. with what I'm saying. Um, but the other common thread is related to that and to yours, which is relentlessness. Hmm. I think just listening to so many different guests, it's just this relentless drive to, for clarity, for understanding, for learning, uh, which is a, and a relentless curiosity um, and a relentless love of the craft of acting whether it's acting Shakespeare or acting in Orange is the New Black. And the great thing is that that's what everyone listening to this podcast shares as well. That's what they have in common. They're, if they've listened to this far, that's why they're listening. It's because they share that spirit of curiosity and relentlessness, relentless intellectual curiosity and wonder. Go. Yeah, and wonder. And just, you know, and that's, it's just a, it's, it's been a great journey. And I hope it continues for quite some time. Yeah. Well, maybe we should leave it there. Here's yeah. our sign-off, yeah? Yeah. Okay. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you. Thank all of you. Guests and listeners. Thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. That was nice. I think we, I think we hit our stride kind of at, at some point there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if we publish this in its entirety, it's going to be an hour and a half. Yeah, we're not going to do that. No, no, we're going <laughs> to... I would like to take the opportunity to make myself sound a little bit more um, concise. Oh, did you just volunteer to edit this? I think I did. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to. Okay, because I start classes tomorrow and I'm going to be you do. in the weeds. Yeah. On a Tuesday, strange. Well, no, because Mondays, I, the school is back in session today, but because yeah. of pace, I take Mondays off. I think. Oh, okay. Yeah.